fasten your seatbelts, and turn up your radio. We're going on a road trip. Wisconsin Public Radio first broadcast in 1917 with the assigned call letters 9XM, making it perhaps the oldest continuously broadcasting radio station in the nation. And six years after 9XM entered the airwaves, a second station was born, WLBL, with call letters that stand for Wisconsin Land of Beautiful Lakes. This month, we celebrate 100 years of WLBL and its journey from a medium for homemakers and farmers to the station you hear on air today. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Today we hear about the history of WLBL, which first launched February 5th, 1923 as WPAH in Wapaka, before later moving to Stevens Point. We invite you to join in our birthday celebration today by calling 800-780-9742 or email questions and comments to ideas at WPR.org. Randall Davidson was the director of radio services and a senior lecturer in radio TV film at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh from 2008 until his retirement in 2020. Before joining UWO, he was with Wisconsin Public Radio in Madison, where he served as a news producer, the statewide afternoon newscaster, and the network's chief announcer. In addition to his on-air work, Davidson was the unofficial historian for WPR, which resulted in his book, 9XM Talking, WHA Radio, and the Wisconsin Idea. It was published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2006 and honored by the Wisconsin State Historical Society as the best book on Wisconsin history published that year. It became available in paperback in 2017. Randall, thank you so much for being here today. I'm delighted to be with you today. Well, paint a picture for us. What was the media landscape like when WLBL was launched? What, what role did that play in everyday life? Well, when the station started, it was uh, prompted by the Department of Markets, which later morphed into the Department of Agriculture in Wisconsin. Uh, they wanted to get uh, farm market materials out to farmers, and uh, it started really with the station in Madison. When they went on the air in 1921 uh, full with a regular schedule, they were doing the weather, and then uh, they added the farm markets. A guy from the markets department would come to the campus and do the farm markets over the noon, noon hour. And uh, the markets people wanted to be on the air more than once a day. And Madison was stuck because they could only be on at the noon hour and at night because the generator that drove the station belonged to the physics department, which was needed for classroom work. And so they had to be on just during lunch and at night. And markets, the markets people say, well, you know, markets come out at different times of the day. Different commodities come, you know, the prices are set at different times. We'd like to be on, could we be on four times a day? And the manager in Madison said, well, yeah, well, it costs more money. And they, he said, I'll split it with you. It'll be $200 a month. Uh, we'll have to hire some more students and buy a generator. And the markets people said, well, I don't know. Maybe with that kind of money, we could do something else. And they started looking for having their own into having their own station. And they set up. Um, they started looking around. They wanted to be in central Wisconsin to re- reach more of the state instead of being way down in the south by Madison. And they settled on Wapaka. There were people in Wapaka already wanted a station. They'd already kind of applied for one. And the potato market prices were set there at that time. And plus, it was on the line between Nina and St. Paul, the, where the telegraph line. That carried the market information was on that line. So being away from that line, any city not on that line would be more money. So it had to be like either Waiwiga or Wapaka or Stevens Point or Marshfield or something like that. It couldn't be Wausau or Wisconsin Rapids or Appleton. It had to be along that line. Oh, okay. Interesting. That's what was driving it. So they settled on Wapaka. 
uh, they uh, bought a brand new transmitter, uh, and they they put up two big towers right behind Main Street on Wapaka to broadcast. And when the station went on the air, uh, it was on the 3rd of February they tested it, 3rd and 4th. The 5th of February they went on the air with their regular schedule, and it was the second most powerful AM station in the United States at the time. Only this GE station in Schenectady, New York, had more power. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's back up just a minute. Sure. I mean, you talk about the farm reports. How did people get them before radio? I mean, and how important were they? Well, they're very important for, uh, for just from an economic point of view, a, f- a market is only efficient where there's instantaneous information. So if you're, on, let's say, on the floor of the stock market in New York, you know the price, the seller knows the price, the buyer knows the price, and prices reach an efficient level. Farm markets, yeah, the prices were set. You could, you could maybe go to the co-op, might have a teletype, with the prices coming in on a ticker of some kind, and you'd know something. But farmers were at a disadvantage. The buyers knew the price. The sellers mm-hmm. really didn't. And, you, yeah, there might be stuff in the paper, but that'd be already a day out of, out of date. Sure. And radio was going to help level the playing field a little bit. And by having the, the prices come up as, they come, you know, as they're set, farmers got an edge. Finally, they weren't at a disadvantage. And that's why it's so important to have this kind of farm market of, uh, information available. WLBL was the second station in what would eventually become Wisconsin Public Radio. And your book, 9XM Talking, spends some time on the WLBL story, but the whole thing started earlier than that. Can you can you tell us a little bit about how public radio really got its start in Wisconsin? Well, the, the station in Madison, 9XM, which became WHA, it's the flagship of here of the Ideas Network, it's still on the air, um, it started as a physics experiment. And this was cutting-edge stuff in the early parts of the 20th century. This was where the real technology um, innovation was happening. And the thing with um, what was called wireless telephony back then, to send a message. Originally, it was telegraphy with dots and dashes. Then they want to try to get voice on there. A lot of people said this will only be good to places where we can't string a wire. Sure. To primarily ships at sea, but maybe to a mountaintop or to a moving train. But the thing is, with this wireless, it's in the air, and if you have the gear, you can hear it, whether it's meant for you or not. So instead of being point-to-point, some people, including people in Madison, say, well, we can use this eavesdropping phenomenon and send one message to a lot of people at once. And in 1916, they settled on doing the weather in Morse code. In Morse code? In Morse code. They, weren't, they hadn't quite got voice yet. Okay. They were working in Morse code, and they would send the weather out at 11 o'clock in the morning— Monday through Saturday, in two speeds in Morse code at 18 words per minute, then at you know, seven words per minute if you're just trying to learn Morse code. And to be sure, more people knew Morse code then than do now. I mean, there were radio people, there were uh, railroad operators, there were hobbyists, there were people who worked for the telegraph companies like Western Union. Um, and at the, me- at the message we had at the end, if you understand this, transcribe it and share it with people in your town. Oh. So we'd ask people to write it up and then post it at the general store or the fire station or the bank so everyone could benefit. There was one town here in central Wisconsin would receive the weather, and they took it to the local telephone exchange, and the operator would ring the entire circuit and read people the weather over the phone. And that's how people got the weather information. Well, it works for Morse code, but right away they said, we got to get voice on the air. So they started working with voice, and we have two instances in 1917 where we know the station in Madison broadcast non-coded voice broadcasting. It wasn't until after World War I, though, that they really got it perfected. And the fall of 1920, 
we had some experimental programming in voice right after KDKA in Pittsburgh went on the air, like that later that week. And then January of 21, we started being on the air every day with regular voice programming, weather, then markets, then a Friday night show of classical music, and then we built the schedule around that. And then WPAH and Wapaka, which became WLBL, they like, gave you the background on the markets. They got going. It wasn't until 1932 the two stations started sharing programming and formed what we would consider a network. Okay. Okay, that, that was one of my questions okay, for good. you. So, yeah. so good, you're, you're reading my mind. This was such a leap forward in technology, as you said. Yes. So w- what kind of excitement was there? Did, did people go out and buy radios? I mean, w- what happened? People would get hooked on this. Um, the Wapaka paper, the year that the, the, the WPAH operated there, they had a big ad in the paper for a local store that you should get your radio. Only $12. You, you don't want to miss this great programming. You can get a radio. And they had a picture of Santa with his headphones on and his carbon microphone and his big speaker. You know, even Santa's got, has been hooked on this radio thing. And people really got into it. It was kind of, I think, I think akin to when the Internet first came out. People really were just fascinated by this technology. And one of the big things that was fun, try to pick up distant stations. And the WPAH, when it went on the air, right away they started getting letters from people at great distances. There was a Wapaka guy who'd moved to North Dakota. He sent a card in over the first weekend. So how far did it reach? You, it went all over the country. We, we were, WLBL was picked up at uh, you know, ships at sea. It was picked up in Mexico. That's crazy. It was crazy. picked up on trains in Ontario. It was picked up all over. Because like I said, it was a powerful station. And at night, AM stations go everywhere. Mm-hmm. They still do. And mm-hmm. that's why stations go off to low power or have to go off at night, AM stations. Back then, um, you know, we're used to this constant stream of sound now. But yes. back then, uh, WPAH spent a lot of time off the air. Oh, goodness, yes. That, was that typical? Uh, they, a lot of stations didn't operate all the time. They'd operate, you know, as they had programming. Um, WPAH was on like six times a day. They were on, they'd be on for 10 minutes at a time with different commodity prices as different markets set their price for the day. And uh, then... Pretty quickly thereafter, they developed a set of evening programming. One night a week, they'd have a special live program. It was sponsored by you know a city. We'd have a we, there'd be a Wausau night. There'd be a Wisconsin Rapids night. There'd be an Oshkosh Normal School night. There'd be a Ripon College night, and there'd be things where people would send their best people, the mayor, their best band, mm-hmm. the university you know glee club or something, and they'd come in and do a show for two hours live. Um, other you know, traveling bands would come in and perform and things like that. But people were tuning in and trying to pick up these distant stations. And this was a, the hobbyists were, the, were leading the, the way on this back then. It wasn't quite the uniform consumer thing until a little bit later. Um, in 1922, at the beginning of the year, there were 28 radio stations in the United States. The end of 1922, there were 600. Oh, that's how fast that grew. Enormous growth. In Enormous it, growth, yeah. And they're all sharing two frequencies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a frog pond of, of interference, you know. Mm-hmm. You talked about the mayors coming in and the, and the bands coming in. Uh, who decided what was appropriate to air? It was usually run by the, the, uh, um, the, the city would decide they're going to bring these people. And there was not a concern about things that were off color or things like that. It was mostly entertainment, the same thing you'd see if people put on a talent show, let's say. But, you know, the mayor would want to say something or someone from the Chamber of Commerce would want to say something, you know, about their town. And uh, right away you started seeing that people were responding. They would send letters. They'd send cards. 
when the Fond du Lac uh, people came up to WPAH to be on the air, the Postal Telegraph office in Fond du Lac stayed open that night so people could send in telegrams to the station. Oh, wow. Um, to, you know, and then we gave out prizes. We'd give out prizes for the most distant listener to call in. And they'd give away, you know, a box of cigars or, uh, you know, a speedometer or something. A speedometer. A, a speedometer was one, one <laughs> thing they gave out. And uh, this was, you know, and so it was kind of fun. And, and, and they found out right away what resonated with listeners. Uh, WPH had a local guy named Arthur Shenicky who played uh, old-time songs on the concertina, I guess. And people really liked that. And so now they're getting an idea of what, 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 what the listeners like around here. Mm-hmm. And so they started, it's kind of early, like, you know, audience research kind of thing. They're, sure. trying, they're trying things. And the thing that, that separated WPH, WLBL from the station in Madison, Madison was run by the university and educators. Mm-hmm. Up here, it's kind of an add-on to the markets people. They're doing it kind of as an add-on to their, their main job of sending out the market newsletter and, you know, Helping farmers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so they were trying things that maybe Madison wouldn't try, and sure. so you see, and you also see a different thing um, uh, in approach to program ideas. Someone comes to Madison with an idea, the Madison manager say, "Well, we'll find a way to do that." You come to the manager in Stevens Point, and you have an idea, and the manager says, "Great, how are you going to pay for it?" <laughs> and there's, there's, there's the rub. A, there's a little bit of a different approach to how you're going to do this, but it's, they're all driven by the same idea: service. Mm-hmm serving people, giving them things that help their lives, that enrich their lives. And both stations approached it that same way. You're listening to Route 51 as we celebrate 100 years of WLBL Radio with Randall Davison here to share the history of public radio in Wisconsin. Ahead, we'll hear about the connection to the Wisconsin idea and the ways in which WLBL transformed over the years as the needs of listeners changed as well. We'll answer your questions, too, when you call us at 800-780-9742. You can also send an email to ideas at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Shereen Seward with our guest, Randall Davidson. He is author, historian, UW Oshkosh lecturer, and one-time WPR chief announcer as we continue our celebration of 100 years of WLBL radio and the role of public broadcasting in Wisconsin. What would you like to know? You can email us at ideas at WPR.org or join us by phone at 800-780-9742. WLBL played an educational role. They were in the classroom, as we just heard. So mm-hmm. what were some of the programs that were used in that capacity? Well, once uh, WLBL and WHA got hooked up together, uh, WLBL wanted to carry the best of the stuff that came from Madison. There was the farm show which was a popular, which makes sense because the Department of Markets, the Homemaker Show, which was a mid-morning show. Uh, but there was also the Wisconsin School of the Air. This was a set of 10 programs, five in the morning, five in the afternoon, that were specifically designed to follow the state curriculum and be used in public school classrooms. And the guy you heard there was Pop Gordon, Edgar Gordon. He was the first classical music host we had at, the, at WHA in Madison. He did the Friday night show Early, early example of adult education. More than just playing music, he would explain the music. Well, he developed this show, Journeys in Music Land, which was on Wednesdays for decades. Even after he retired, it was still on. I sang along in 1970 when I was in sixth grade <laughs> in Nina. What a great memory. Yeah. Huh? I found in my mom's piano bench after she passed away her 1943 book when she was growing up at a one-room schoolhouse in Iola. Oh, wow. So excellent fun, you know. So it was great fun. Um, but he, this was a show, you, a one-room schoolhouse wouldn't have a singing class, probably, a singing teacher. 
so you could turn on the radio and get a world-class educator. They had a singing show. They had an art show on the radio, honest. Uh, they had a geography show. They had a, a show on Fridays for little kids, kindergartner, preschoolers, uh, called um, Rhythm and Games. And this show, the host started in 1931 when we started the series when she was 55. She retired when she was 90 in 1966. Mm. And uh, this was to teach people, you know, kids to follow the rules and be polite and play fair and, you know, watch out, be safe, that kind of thing. Uh, we had a, a conservation show. In 1935, the state required conservation education in schools. These one-room schoolhouses, how are we going to do that? Right. Well, here's your, your state network stations. Have a show for you, a field with Ranger Mac. Hmm. And he will take care of that conservation requirement for you. And this, um, he was a forester, and he felt that once you planted a tree, you'd always care about trees. So he got his school kids. He provided trees for school kids to plant, particularly in the cutover here in the northern part of the state after lumbering had gone through. By 1944, his students had planted 7 million trees in Wisconsin. Wow. Many of which are probably still standing. Sure. And, um, but it caused a little bit of consternation. We had a story of a teacher, a one-room schoolhouse teacher. Uh, some father came in just furious. I want to talk to this Ranger Mac guy. Why? What and, happened? Well, the, the, the teacher said he's not here. He's on the radio. Why? She said, he said, well, he says, as soon as my kids are old enough, we go hunting every weekend. And I guess that means whether it's in season or not. Oh, sure. And the previous week, his son had refused to go. He said, Ranger Mac says, you're not playing fair. Oh, and he took exception he to that. He took exception to the fact that Ranger Mac is talking about conservation and why we have hunting seasons oh. and so forth. And so there was, you know. That's incredible. Yeah. It sounds like those educational efforts really played a crucial role for rural classrooms. It was the first thing that the network, that the network stations did that really demonstrated to the state legislature, which was funding the whole enterprise, that there was tangible value in your district. Mm -hmm. And uh, the singing program particularly was extremely popular. Um, but there was things for high schoolers. There were things for fifth graders. There were things for... Kindergartners. There were, and then eventually we added a couple years later in 1933, the Wisconsin College of the Air, and this is really close to the Wisconsin idea, getting the riches of the university to people, and not just students but to everybody, and that was a radical notion when it was proposed in 1904, um, but we started doing, not for credit originally, but classroom lectures. Three days a week, it would be classroom lectures. You could follow a class for a semester just as though you were sitting in the classroom. And I have a personal connection to this. My uncle uh, was a rural mail carrier in Wapaka County in, uh, at, at Friola. Didn't go to college, but he felt he got an entire college education because he listened to the College of the Air on his 80-mile mail route every day. Oh, wow. And got to take, you know, History of Russia and Introduction to Psychology and all these different courses that we offered for free over the air. He didn't get credit for it, but he felt he was enriched. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is all about, to improve your life. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about the Green Bay Packers. I want to shift to that because that's something – you and I were talking about this a little bit before we went on the air and about how exciting the Green Bay Packers coverage was for, uh, for the listeners. And what was that partnership like? Well, the thing was uh, in 1932, we got uh, – WLBL got hooked up with WHA. And – Occasionally it'd be off the air. Occasionally it'd be, they'd have it with a telephone connection, which was $1,000 a month. That would get cut for budget reasons. But they could pick up WHA, this, this antenna system, and picked up WHA clearly. Uh, but once they had that in place, 
they realized it picks up other stations up here. And they said, well, what could, else could we do? So the first thing they tried, in the fall of 32, they tried a, um, a Wisconsin football game, homecoming game, just to see if it worked. And it worked really well. They got a good response. Um, and so in 33, they signed on with the Packers. Now, the problem is WLBL is not on Sundays at this time. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how this worked. We think, I think maybe the engineers volunteered their time to go to the station, turn it on, you know, and, get and this get game on. Because mm-hmm. I've seen logs from there, program logs, where they turn the station on right before the game, and they turn the station off right, right after, after the game. There's no programming around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, th- in 33, they joined uh, this, this early Packers radio network, which was WTMJ in Milwaukee, WLBL, and a station in lacrosse. That's it. That was it. That's it. This is how unimportant NFL football was. At the time, the big sports back then were college football, baseball, professional baseball, and maybe a little bit of college basketball, but also horse racing and boxing were kind of the big sports that people followed. And so professional football, even as late as the late 50s, CBS had a raging debate going on at CBS television about whether or not we should even do NFL football. It seems ridiculous now. Can you even imagine that now? Yeah, but there was this debate going on at CBS saying, I don't know. One of the arguments was, you know, professional football is really for people that didn't go to college. They don't have a college team to cheer for. Really? And so there's a debate. Fortunately, Uh it came out that they said, we will carry it. It became the Big Mac cash cow that it is now for professional television. But we carried the Packers. And the problem was it was sponsored. WLBL is a non-commercial station. So when the newspaper ad says it's carried at WL on a sustaining non-commercial basis, well, in radio, sustaining means it's a program with no commercials. Okay. Either, I think WLBL certainly didn't get any money to carry the Packers, but they must have blocked the commercials and covered them up. The commercials were for the Wadhams Oil Company. And Wadhams ran all those mobile stations in Wisconsin that had the pagoda-style roofs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was Wadhams. They sponsored okay. all that. I called the Packers. They have no records of this, of WLBL carrying it. I called WTMJ. They have no records of it carrying really? it. Uh, it wasn't until 1943 that the Packers actually uh, paid the station to carry it. Uh, or the station paid the Packers to carry the, the games, rather. It was $7,500 it got for the season. So it was, but, that, but that was something that nobody knew. When I did this research, nobody knew that WLBL, car- WLBL carried the Packers. And from 33 to 38, the whole season. Wow. And it was... Another thing that, again, WLBL tried this. WHA didn't go that route mm-hmm. in Madison. But up here, they said, well, we'll try that. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing to try. Our audience will appreciate that. And sure enough, they did. What about the relationships with other sports teams? You talked about baseball and, and college ball. Was there anything on the air um, on WLBL of, uh, that represented those or high school sports? Or we, Yeah, they did some high school sports. One of the things they, they did carry, uh, they carried the high school uh, basketball tournament. And there was a rule back then, a Madison station was prohibited from carrying it. No, it couldn't be on the air in Madison at all because they wanted people to come to the games because mm-hmm. that's where the games were. But WLBL carried the, the high school basketball tournament but could only carry the daytime games because they were off at, after sundown. Uh, they carried um, Central State Teachers College, UW-Stevens Points, college games um, occasionally. Uh, they would carry, um, they carried a, a boxing t- game, one, a boxing match once by teletype. They were at the Stevens Point Journal teletype AP machine and as the they got the blow-by-blow description and the manager of WLBL gave the blow-by-blow as it came in on a teletype and read it into a microphone so you kind of had that kind of thing 
Um, but yeah, this was, this was part of what they were doing, and, and you know, they were trying to do things and get you know, high school sports particularly trying to be with the communities. But they were, like I said, they were trying. You know, they carried the um, uh, the Wisconsin Badgers. Uh, they tried that once, and they, you know, they're trying things. Mm-hmm. So, how did people know? When to tune in for what? I mean, we had all these these farm market reports, the the homemaker reports, the sports games, but how did they know the schedule? Well, I I, I gather that WLBL had a pretty good system of news releases for the paper, but the Stevens Point Journal, one of the, for a city that size, was it was rare that the newspaper didn't own a radio station. Stevens Point's newspaper never owned a, a radio station, so they didn't feel that WLBL was actually encroaching on them, mm. like in Madison. Once the newspapers owned radio stations, you hardly ever heard about WHA. Mm-hmm. You only heard about the station that the newspaper owned. Mm-hmm. Stevens Point, they would actually print the program schedule for the com- coming day on the editorial page. Starting in about 1933 and all the way up to 1950, you could read what was coming up minute by minute on the day. Some of it was coming from Madison, to be sure, but a lot of it was local. And WLBL had lots of local folks mm-hmm. coming in, doing shows uh, to... Try different types of music and different kinds of things. So those collaborations are interesting. I mean, with with Stevens Point Journal, for mm-hmm. example. What about with the university? What, what kinds of uh, of airplay partnerships did they have there? Well, the station moved uh, its offices to the, to uh, Central State Teachers College in 1938. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, they'd been in the Fox Theater in Stevens Point, and then before that, the Whiting Hotel. Uh, the, once they moved to the campus, they started wiring up rooms for. They got a nice studio facility. You know, that was kind of theirs and theirs alone. But they, uh, the students started having shows. There was a, a radio workshop class that generated programming. Mm-hmm. There was the, the purple and gold hour, you know, uh-huh, sure. which makes sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a teacher there that, that oversaw this. And the students were also in charge of doing the local newscasts mm-hmm. starting in 39, 40. I'm not quite sure how, what content they had. We think, and I can't prove it, but we think – the Stevens Point Journal was providing AP copy to them that there was, they weren't using in the paper. Mm-hmm. AP didn't have a teletype for broadcast until 1941. Oh, okay. Uh, UP Press had one in 35, but there was a big, big controversy about the wire services providing content to these competitors to the newspapers. And so it took a while for them to have a wire service that they could use. But yeah, by, by 19... 4041, they, they had wire service at WLBL with that they could use. Did WLBL play any role in the war effort? I mean, it was a, you know, a, a pretty big force during yep. World War II. Well, one thing that they did, they had to give up their studio for barracks space at Stevens Point. Oh, their, wow. Their big studio, which was a pretty good-sized room, they, they, it became a barracks. And they were stuck using their little studio, which probably isn't as big as this room that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, you know, music groups will be limited to six people. Oh. We can have ten people on the air at once on roundtable shows, but they'll have to stand, no sitting, you know, kind of thing. Um, but that was what they did. They also, there was a lot of kind of wartime programming that came from Madison. Uh, there, were, there were shows about... Um, Scrap drives. There were shows uh, about bonds. There were shows about. There was a show from Truax Field in Madison, uh, talking about what the Army Air Corps is doing. Uh, there were things like that, and also Madison lost a lot of its network mail announcers. Oh, we were called up. With that them. makes sense. And we that was the first time we really started having female announcers in Madison on a regular basis. Uh, the farm show host he he ended up going into the infantry. Uh, Milton Bliss, 
and he uh, he was gone for the duration, and we had a fill-in host for the farm show mm-hmm. until he returned. Wow. What about election coverage? Was, was there election coverage on the radio during yeah, that time? Yeah. Uh, actually, the, one of the last nights we, that WLBO was on the air after sundown was election night of 1928. And again, we partnered with the State Journal. And they were doing it before Madison was. Um, Stevens Point was doing election coverage in 1928. I have not found anything where it's, that said Madison was doing any, anything that early, except maybe within the newscasts. But live election coverage, you know, night, you know, hour by hour. When I have to wonder, uh, was there ever any friction between the Madison Station and and WLBL? Was there? It was. Yeah, it was. A bit of tug of war, perhaps. Well, a couple things. Uh, Madison, uh, the manager down there, Harold McCarty, was uh, very much a booster of this, and he he just felt everything that comes out of Madison is just excellent. Why would you want to carry anything else? And the people in Stevens Point said, well, this is our station, and we do farm markets a lot of times during the day. And if that doesn't fit your schedule, so, sorry. <laughs> and there was some pressure to move from, the, from uh, the free space they had at the Fox Theater to move to the campus. They, Madison was putting pressure on the Stevens Point station to move so they could be on campus. And it's like, but the people in Stevens Point said, well, but we have to get off the market mailings, and we're right by the post office downtown. That's inconvenient for us. And there was so some kind of there was a lot of tension there, but at the same time they had to gang up together to fight off people trying to get them off the air. The commercial broadcasters were trying to say, Well, you guys you're competing with us, you should be you shouldn't be on the air. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd make noise at the Capitol and so forth, and the, the, we don't need this kind of thing. WTMJ promised to do educational broadcasting if really? these stations were off the air. Well, do you think that would still be going on now? Probably not. I mean commercial even commercial stations carried classical music back then, and mm-hmm. that that all would disappear in the pursuit of higher ratings. Sure, by now it's a totally different, totally different world. Yes, and so there was there was this tension. If you go to I well, I've looked recently, but the last time I was at Stevens Point campus uh, on the uh, on the building where WLBL was on on the window frames, the kind of um, the masonry window frames on one end of the building, it says "Reserved WLBL for Parking." The station hasn't been in that building since 1951. And there's still lines for reserved parking there. Is that which, right? Which is kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious. Are there any? Are there any of the early programs that remain today, at least in some kind of capacity? There's just a bare few from, that were actually WLBL local things. There's a lot of stuff from Madison that was carried on WLBL. A lot of school of the air stuff exists. The earliest recordings we have are from 1935. And they would, if you saw the movie Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where they're singing into the into, singing into the can, Yes. you see in the other room this record thing going around. They're actually cutting a record. That's how you made a recording until tape recording came along. Mm. All the recordings that we have from back then are on, t- on these big discs. And um, so we have the earliest ones are from 35, 36 kind of thing. So we have a lot of the shows there, if you're School of the Air and College of the Air, Farm Show, things like that. Um, I, I had a chance... Uh, I wanted to see in the WLBL building in Auburndale, where the transmitter is. And I called the engineer up at Rib Mountain. I said, do you ever get down there? And he says, yeah, we go once a week to calibrate things and check things out. I said, could I get in there? I'd like to see what's in there. I said, you know. He said, sure, I'll meet you. I'll get a little set up. We set up a day to go. I said, is there anything historic in there? <laughs> no. Well, he says, there's that file cabinet full of stuff from the 1930s. Oh. And I said, oh, Gold mine. Doctor, do I want to see that? 
And uh, so I, I, I mentioned in the office that when I was working at Wisconsin Public Radio, I said, I'm going, I'm going up to Auburndale to look at the transmitter building. And Wisconsin Public Television heard about it. Guy across the hall, he says, can we come along? I guess so. I said, what do you want to do? I said, well, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking at this file cabinet. We want to see you open the file cabinet. He said, we want to film that and do a show a segment on it. I said, okay. So the, uh, the producer and a photographer met me at Auburndale. They filmed me getting out of my car and going up the stairs into the building. I opened this cabinet to see what great relic might be in there. And the first thing I pull out is a memo from one of the engineers asking for time off to get his hernia fixed. So it's not the relic that I hope for. <laughs> but to, to their credit, the Educational Communications Board, which owns the station, they gave me permission to take that stuff out there, catalog it, get it out of there. And it's in climate-controlled storage now at their office in Madison. So all that, it went back to about 1932, the stuff I found in there. But there's lots of rich pickings in there, too. There's oh, a lot of, lot of fun stuff. And it's an interesting building. Engineers had to be on site. So it has a bathroom, it has a kitchen, it has a bedroom in it. Oh. You never think about that now. No. Engineers had to be on site at transmitters back then. Wow. Can't even imagine. <laughs> Randall Davidson is our guest today on Route 51 as we continue our celebration of 100 years of WLBL radio. And we are discussing the important role public broadcasting plays in the lives of Wisconsin residents even today. We'd like to hear from you. You can join us at 800-780-9742. Send an email to ideas at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward with our guest, Randall Davidson, who wrote the book 9XM Talking, WHA Radio and the Wisconsin Idea. Our celebration of 100 years of WLBL Radio continues now. If you have questions for our guests, please join us at ideas at WPR.org or call 800-780-9742. Randall, what did we just hear? That was one of the Wisconsin School of the Air programs called Book Trails, where they dramatize books for use in schools. And that was Carl Schmidt from Chapter Day fame. That was, he did lots of stuff like that. Uh, the School of the Air programming uh, remained on the air, over the air, uh, by the time, by 1982, it was just on Fridays. They did three shows in a row on Friday. Um, and then it went to a, a tape service and a subsidiary thing. It was like a side channel thing that you couldn't pick up over the air. Uh, it lasted until 1995. In fact, it lasted long enough that I actually got to be involved in it. As you know, you're listening to the Wisconsin School of the Air. This is Book Trails, that kind of thing, <laughs> yeah. where I do the announcing at the beginning. Um, but this lasted a long time, and this was this was when I go to talk about the book to the public. This is the thing people want to talk about. They want to talk about School of the Air, and um, there's all kinds of connections there. There's, um, of course, Carl Schmidt, you know, from Chapter Day fame. Um, he was he was a big part of it. Um, the guy who was the when I did the Journeys of Musicland show was called Let's Sing by the time I took it in nineteen seventy. The guy who played the piano was Don Vagley, and he's famous because he wrote the theme for All Things Considered. Oh. And he gave it free to NPR because without copyright or anything. But he wrote that. And then he came up with a he had the corner office at, in Madison for a long time where he said he early experimenter with like synthesizers, electronic music. He developed a bunch of LP records he distributed free to um, non-commercial stations with a bunch of themes of, with electronic music. They sounded like the All Things Considered theme, sort of, mm -hmm. but you could use them for your local show. Very nice. nice. Very nice. But that was, there's all kinds of connections like that. And these were, these were really interesting shows that really um, provided real value to local people and made it evident to, the, to local people and to legislators 
that this radio service was a worthy endeavor. So many of those programs were so enormously popular. Chapter a day. Mm -hmm. Still on. Still on. Still enormously popular. And this is the thing when I wrote the book that angered my colleagues at Wisconsin Public Radio the most. I had to kind of burst their bubble about their legend about the show. The legend was it started in 1927. A guest didn't show up, like if I hadn't shown up today, and in a panic you would have grabbed a book and read for an hour or a half hour. Sure, I've heard that story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That probably happened. But Chapter Day didn't start the next day. It started like five years later. And it was a summer-only show. Um, It was done by students. And it kind of filled the school of the air slot when there wasn't school programming. And it was brand new releases. It wasn't classic literature. It was new releases only. And um, I found what I think is the first book that was read on Chapter Day by, uh, called David's Day. It came out that year. And I brought it in. I was on a uh, pledge drive once with Jim Fleming. And I gave him the book. I said, read a little bit in your Chapter a Day voice. You know, and that was such a thrill. Your chapter a day voice. <laughs> it was such a thrill to have him uh, do that. But uh, Chapter Day started in 32 for sure. It wasn't on every day. It was the years where it wouldn't be on. It was on again in 35. But starting in 1939, it was on every day. It's been on every day since. So it's still a tremendously long run. There are very few radio and TV shows that have been on that long in the world other than that one. I mean, there's been there's maybe a half a dozen, maybe a dozen more that have been on longer than that, like the Metropolitan Opera's been on since, you know, 1931, and, you know, but stuff like that, there's very few that go back that far, and that's a, it's such a great show. I mean, everybody likes being read to. They do. And I would get, I would get calls, because I used to run the board after Larry, after Larry Mueller was on, I was the guy on the air, and I'd run chapter a day, but I get these calls from people that, you know, oh, what happened? I missed the beginning. What happened there? You know, uh-huh. and, or they they say, you know, we work in a factory. We take our lunch together from twelve thirty to one, and nobody talks. We all sit and listen to chapter a day. I got this, these factory workers are sitting. That's great. Silently at lunch, let's listen to chapter a day. I think that's great. It is great to have that feeling that <laughs> people. It matters to it people. Matters to, it, it absolutely matters. matters to people. So you were the network's chief announcer. Take me through the take me through a day in the life. What was it like? Well, I primarily worked in the news department. I I would come in and I did the breaks in the morning. Um, I did the top of the hour breaks with the weather and everything, uh, starting at ten o'clock at nine fifty nine. And I'd do the break there, and then there was a show that back then it was from either in the studio in Madison or it came from Milwaukee. And during that first hour, I would I would uh, work in the newsroom doing the traffic, taking care of the scripts and the audio and all that. And I do the break at at at, at uh, eleven, noon, and then at twelve thirty I'd come on and do chapter a day and run that, and then I do the breaks in the afternoon, and then later I I I'm, they kept shifting me around. Later I became the afternoon news anchor, and so I had a big break in the middle of the day where I didn't have to do the breaks, and someone else ran like talk of the nation and that. But I did lots of announcing. I was the years I was there, I was the person on the air the most in terms of just sheer hours on the air. I trained all the part time announcers. Uh, I backed them all up. I had to be able to do every air shift. I had to be able to host talk shows and host the opera. My big backup thing was doing Simply Folk. I did Saturday Night Jazz. I did Classics in the Evening. I did Classics by Request. So I did. I had to be able to do all the all the bits. And uh, so that was, it was very interesting. It was never dull. I hope they had a cot for you, too, uh, because it, it sure was, sounds it like you worked of, a lot. I worked lots of Christmases. And... Uh, 
and but yeah, it was uh, it was interesting and the, to kind of keep track of um, you know what was going on. You know, well, what station is okay? These stations are moving here now. Okay, I have to say on most of these stations that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it it was uh, as I said off the air. I missed the most working with the news department. The news reporters were a tremendously fun group of people to work with. Super smart, super curious about things, and uh, always under pressure. Sure, we're under deadline pressure all the time. But if we had been under deadline pressure and had been awful people to work with, it'd been much worse. Sure, the deadline pressure was was kind of you know you kind of live with it. And um, I remember John Powell called me. He used to send his stories unassembled from the Capitol. I have to cut them together because he does so many. I see how many stories you got, John. So I want to know how big a piece of tape to put up. I've got nine stories for you. You'd say, "Oh man, nine stories!" You know, so that's another thing I should mention: the 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 the, the news value of the station and the network to have all the, to have a reporter full time covering mm-hmm. state government. We got two now covering state government, keeping an eye on what's happening. You know, from a legislative perspective, people in all corners of the state covering things that are going on there. That's a tremendous, tremendous asset to people have that. We have a, a caller with us who has been a long-time listener, Anne from Stevens Point. Welcome, Anne. Hi there. Well, yes, we've been listening since the uh, early 70s. Um, and one uh, back in the early days, they used to go around each noon and give a weather report, have the local engineer give the report. And one time we were listening, and the guy comes on and he says something like, well, we had a few cows visit the station this morning. They left their <laughs> calling cards, left their calling cards on the ground. <laughs> and I, we just laughed and said, "I guess this is local and folksy." <laughs> oh, thank you so thank much. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate you calling, Ann. Yeah, the uh, yeah the local the local stuff. I, here's here's a little clip too. Oh, could hardly hear it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. that was that was that was too. Uh, this too, was the weather. Soft, but. This was the weather roundup. This was something back in the day. The transmitters had to be staffed, mm-hmm. and we thought, what could we what could we do with this? And once we had the whole network in place in 1952, they developed the weather roundup, where each engineer in turn would give their local conditions. They wouldn't give the forecast, but they'd give their local conditions. And they're broadcast engineers, and to say it nicely, they're not announcers. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they were hired for engineering expertise, not for their voices, and they all had really interesting regional voices, sure. regional accents. And, uh, and they became kind of celebrities. People on vacation would drive to these remote transmitters to see the guy that gives the weather from Brule or to see, you know, or to see the guy at Rib Mountain, you know, and they wanted to see these people. And, uh, and, but, the, the, but the cow story... We've we had issues in the, the station in Chilton. Uh, a deer stuck its head in the transmitter room once. The guy was on the air and here a deer came in, oh. <laughs> and the guy in Brule came out and found that porcupines had chewed the hoses of his car while he was on the air. Oh no! So we had we've had our we've had our troubles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> gotta love live radio. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. When did you become the the historian? How how did that happen? Well, I was ans- I was always interested in history, and every morning when I walk to work, there's a historical marker on the side of the building. It says that 9XM WHA is the oldest station in the nation. And I read that, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Why isn't it in the books? 
that we're the, if we're the oldest, are we really? Mm-hmm. And so I, I there's kinda, that curiosity again. Yeah, curiosity, <laughs> and I thought, well, that's interesting. So I, but then I started finding out where the stuff on campus was. If I had to answer a question from a listener, when did you first carry the Metropolitan Opera? Someone says. I thought, well, I got to go find that. Mm-hmm. So I go to the State Historical Society and find the 1963 program guides, and there they are. You know, kind of thing. Um, and I found out where the where the art where the different archives were. You know, the University Archives, State Historical Society, uh, School of Music, things like that on campus. And um, one day I was I was coming. If you remember, Jean Faraka took a year off uh, in the early two thousands to write a memoir, and she only came in on Fridays to do her food show. And I hadn't I hadn't talked to her, and so I was walking back from lunch, and uh, I see her, and I she says, "Oh, Randall," she says, "You've got to get down to the publisher." They want to know if you want to write. I told them there's a guy who knows all this history, and they want to know if you want to write a book about this. I said, well, okay. I said, <laughs> so I went down there, and they, they quizzed me on my expertise, and I said, well, I know this history. And so they said, could you write a book? I said, I have no idea if I can write a book. I have no frame of reference. I said, how big a book do you want? And they said, could you do 105,000 words? <sighs> I, I said, I don't know how much that is. I said, I type 30 words a minute. I said, we can, you know. <laughs> sure. And I and. And he says, how, how long would it take you to do this? I said, I don't know, two years? He said, could you do 18 months? I said, maybe. I said, <laughs> I had no idea. So they gave, they gave me an advance to write it. Mm-hmm. And I, I turned it in four days early. First guy in history to turn one in early. <laughs> and uh, they, it got delayed a little bit at the publisher because they had a couple of people whose books were, it was, the books coming out, was they're going to get their, their tenure. So I had to get kind of shuffled back a little bit. It came out in the fall of 06. And so I became kind of the go-to guy for some oddball history thing. If there's a question about this, about that, when did you do your first call-in show? Um, you know, when did, uh, when did WHBM go on the air? When did WLBL do his last show locally? You know, that kind of thing. So those questions came to me, and I became – I'm the unofficial historian, so I'm not, that's an official not thing. official. No, but chief announcer was the official thing, and news anchor was the official thing. But I like, I like the role of it. It's kind of interesting, and it's, I like – um, it, it's, it appeals to the curiosity in my, my soul. I like to know, find out things that no one living still knows, and you know? Sure, sure. Digging through all that, that history. Yeah, there's stuff that's going on that the one thing that I, that I came up from the early days of WLBL, they had a show at midnight on Saturdays called The Enemies of Sleep hmm. for the younger set. Okay. For people who keep late hours, as they say. <laughs> okay. And you could join a club called the, the, the Enemies of Sleep Club. And for a dime, you could get a certificate saying you remember and a lapel pin. I love that idea. I would love, to your listeners, I would love to find a lapel pin from 1924. If you have one, call them here at the station and let me know. Okay. Because that's the, that's the holy grail relic of all time to find that one. <laughs> and Yes, 800-780-9742. <laughs> if you have one of those, um, yeah, we would love to see it. We've got about oh, a little over 30 seconds left together. So very briefly, I, wanna, I want you to tell me the, the relationship between public radio and the Wisconsin idea. And I know it's, it's a big subject. It's really it, it, it's a, a great uh, demonstration of the Wisconsin idea. It was set out in the early years of the 20th century that, that the Wisconsin idea we should get the riches of the university to everybody. And people at the Extension Division stumbled on the radio station in Madison and said, this is going to be one thing we can use. And that's what it's been to this day. We're, we're not here for ratings. We're not here to get wealthy. We're not here for fame. We're here to benefit you. 
to get you the best stuff we can get you to improve your life from an education point of view, from an information point of view, and from a cultural point of view. Randall, thank you so much. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Once again, a sincere thanks to our guest, Randall Davidson. Our producers are Joy Ratchkramer and Kate Springer. Our executive producer is Rick Ryer. Joy is our on-air producer today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program and previous programs at wpr.org slash route 51. If you have an idea for a future program, email us at ideas at wpr.org. Next week, we'll be back with another fascinating discussion, and we hope you will join in. Until then, we're heading out of town.